And uh, we're going to actually begin, uh, Joan, we're going to begin with verse 19, not verse 16. So when we get to that place, we're just going to jump to that for time's sake. Um, before we do that, um, we want to pray together. We're going to take the Lord's Supper uh, at the end of our time of worship, and we want the Lord to use these moments and uh, prepare our hearts and minds and lives uh, as we prepare to take that time of worship. There are needs in this room, there are many, and we want to speak to those needs and uh, pray that God would work there in our lives together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that um, we come to you as Father today with our lives, with our needs, including the need for you to direct us, to provide for us, chastise us, discipline us, call attention to the enemy's lies that find their roots in our hearts and lives and behavior, that, Father, we might fall at your feet, that we might submit our hearts to your mind, and that we would open our hearts to your scripture today in fresh and new ways, that you would produce holiness in us, that you would come reminding all of us of the grace that we needed at the beginning of our walk with you, we continue to need, and the grace that's available to all who will turn to you today. Help us now, help this struggling preacher, help us with all of our agendas and things going on in our minds to be able to hear you. And may Jesus, your son, be honored, in whose name we pray, amen. If you would stand with me as we uh, look at God's word this morning, let me see if I'm coordinated enough to do this, but uh, we're going to use a third screen a little bit today, and uh, I'm going to try to move that forward if I can without unplugging everything. Again, the text is Second um, Peter, chapter one. We're actually we, we look at verses 16, 17, 18 last week. We're going to actually get back to them today. So, for time's sake, we're just going to go to verse 19. Uh, and if you would read um, on the screen or with your own copy of the scriptures, Peter continues to say, "Well, let me tell you what he said." All right, just so you jumping right into it. He's um, had this incredible first chapter. We've spent all these weeks looking at. He said, now, remember this, it's, don't forget it, uh, keep focused on it, pay attention to it. Uh, when I'm gone, I'm hoping that you'll still have it because it's so critical. And then we ask why, and he begins to give those reasons, particularly the truth about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some who, it becomes clear in chapters 2 and 3, they're saying there is no return of Christ, there is no final judgment, you don't have to worry about that. And it's not just that they're thinking and their doctrine's wrong, but there are real consequences. They say also, because we don't have to face all that, uh, you live any way you want to live. Don't worry about holiness. Don't worry about godliness. Don't worry about trying to be like Jesus. Just, just you're not gonna, you don't have to think that way. And, and Peter is dealing with all of that. He's given the first answer in verses 16, 17, and 18. He basically points to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. He says, I was there. I saw it. I was an eyewitness to it. I know he's coming back. I've seen a preview of it. And I, uh, eyewitnesses matter. There were three of us there. Now, he continues with more reasons in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He just said amazing things about what he saw. He said there's something more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's a really interesting verse. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thank you. If you'd be seated, please. Uh, 
our Muslim friends and neighbors believe that the Quran was orally dictated by God to the man they think is the final prophet, Muhammad. He did it through the archangel, archangel Gabriel. It evidently happened incrementally over a period of some 23 years. When Muhammad died, the uh, Quran did not exist. It had not yet been written. Muhammad couldn't write it. He was illiterate. He couldn't write. But over those years, he had taken the word-by-words uh, message, and he had repeated it over and over to his disciples, and their scribes actually recorded, according to Muslim tradition, those revelations. If you have a Muslim friend, he may, among other things, have a very low opinion and disdain for our scriptures, for the Bible, though Mohammed quotes a great deal of the Old Testament and uses it, sometimes completely misses the point of it, sometimes not so much, but uh, they would say that the Bible as a whole is just not. We have the exact words of God given directly by God through an archangel, uh, directly to our prophet, one guy, singular, we know, our, and your Bible comes just hodgepodge of all these different authors, and they would say, just, they would have a hard time seeing how you would give much respect to the scriptures that we call. So my question is this morning, how does a Christian understand the Bible? Now, let me summarize what I think Peter has said to us. It's probably not perfect paraphrase, but it is my understanding of what Peter says to this in these verses we just read this morning. And that is this. The Bible is completely from God, given through men, and progressively understood and confirmed in the lives of Christians as we pay attention to it as our ultimate source of truth. I know that's a lot, but I hope we can make that clear as we walk through it this morning. I think for many of you, it may be to help anchor you in a place that you need to be anchored. For many of you, you probably already hold these understandings. I hope to reinforce your confidence in and your desire for the Bible by reminding you of, of the three basic points. Number one, the Bible is completely from God. Number two, God has given it to men through the sovereign work of his Holy Spirit. And three, we need to see and properly use its light as the only fully trustworthy truth in a dark world. So let's begin with the Bible is completely from God. Peter says that the scripture is not the creation, the imagination, the, the efforts of men. He says in verse 21, we're sort of started by at the, at the end of this passage and work back up to a great degree this morning. He says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In verse 20, the verse before it, he says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, we probably need to start by defining what do we mean by Scripture. And my answer will be, if you want to get to the bottom line of it, what we call the Old and the New Testament, what you hold probably in your hand uh, or on your phone. Those, those books made up 66 books. We believe that is the scripture that we're talking about here. You'll notice he says in verse 20 that no prophecy and scripture, and those two are connected. The word scripture is used frequently in the New Testament. Uh, it is the word graphe. It simply means writing, but it means more than just a general idea of writing. It, is, it becomes a, a technical term, and in almost every case, as it's used in the, the New Testament, it's referring back to the Old Testament. Um, sometimes it's called the Holy Scriptures. 
We believe that Scripture it has a supernatural effect. I believe that the Bible, because it is holy, that if you will begin to read it, it will either over time supernaturally change you, or you will, you will come to the point that you will not desire, you will not care to read it anymore. But it will have an effect one way or another. You will not just... It's just that the nature of, of God's authoritative words, it will produce holiness if given an opportunity. Now, sometimes in the New Testament, the word prophecy uh, was used to describe the whole Old Testament. Sometimes other terms are used. Sometimes the law. Often it's the law and prophecy. On at least one occasion, the more complete um, description of what we call the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, meaning the Pentateuch, the history, all of that, plus the prophecies of, of Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the rest of them, and the writings, that is Psalms and Proverbs and, and those wisdom, all of that makes up the Old Testament. However, the New Testament apostles recognized that the Old Testament, where God had given what they now call the Old Covenant, that that covenant had been fulfilled in a new covenant, and that in Jesus Christ, as we, as we take the Lord's Supper today, we take in that new covenant meal. It flowed out of the old covenant, the Passover, but now this new covenant, and they had every expectation that as the old covenant had scripture, the new covenant would have its scriptural writings as well. And you begin to see how this develops in the church, even in the pages of the New Testament. You see it even in Peter's letter. If you turn to, it's only three chapters, turn to the third chapter of Second Peter, and we read very interesting words. They're not... Peter's not trying to make a point, but he does, and it's an important one. He says in verse 15, he's talking about these false teachers and how they do things. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, he says, now again, talking about Paul's letters, he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Doesn't that encourage you? Paul can be difficult at times. He writes, if you could see in the Greek, he writes sentences that go on like page after page, one sentence. Uh, he is he's not always easy. But he goes on to say, these hard but important writings, the ignorant and the unstable, that is the false prophets he's been talking about, they twist them to their own destruction, and here's the throwaway line, as they do other scripture. So he's talking about the, the letters of Paul. They're being circulated. He's not writing to argue that the letters of Paul are Scripture. He's, he's writing because he knows his readers, the people he's talking to, they take it as a given that this is Scripture. As he takes that Paul's letters are Scripture. The church was recognizing already these early letters, before the whole thing's put together, they're recognizing that there are words that are more than other words. They are actually the same level of, of authority as Scripture. You remember when we were back in 1 Timothy, we saw that uh, there as well. Um, he writes to young Timothy, and he says in 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says. And then he quotes two different passages. The first one is, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain. Obviously, scripture, that's from the book of Deuteronomy. And then he quotes, the laborer deserves his wages. Well, that's, those are the words of Jesus. They come from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. It's much the same in Matthew 10, 10. He's quoting New Testament evidence, New Testament words, which, again, Paul just understands it as he believed Timothy understood it, as the early church was beginning to recognize already this is Scripture. And so just to cut to the chase, we could talk a lot more about this, uh, but the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, ultimately those are the, the, the writings that are unique in the history of the world, they are Scripture. 
Now you note that he says that Scripture is not man-made. Sinful, false men are constantly trying to write counterfeit Scripture. <laughs> Jeremiah spoke of it in his day. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Ezekiel 13.3 describes foolish prophets, those who follow their own spirit, but they really see nothing. They have no word from God. They're just making it up as they go. This is, of course, what Peter said in verse 16. We looked at last week. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Peter's essentially saying it again in verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So we believe and have confidence in the scriptures. Yet it's interesting the ways that people will try to undermine that. You will hear people sometimes say to you, uh, you know, I believe in Jesus. I trust Jesus. Uh, but the Bible, not so much. Not so, not so categorically as I trust Jesus. My friend... That is to make a Jesus in your own image. Because everything we know about the Lord Jesus when he was here, every time that the scriptures were mentioned, used, brought up, he always treated them as exactly the word of God. Over and over. He's, you remember he said not a jot, not a tittle, not one tiny part of the scriptures will pass away until it's completely fulfilled. The most famous, of course, occasion of that was when he was tempted. And the, the enemy, the devil, came to him and tried to tempt him three different ways. How did he respond to that temptation? Here he was. He was fully God as well as fully man. He could have jumped off that temple and, and the angels caught him. He could have zapped rocks and turned them into bread. He could have, for that matter, he could have lit the devil on fire and sent him where he needed to go. He didn't do any of that. He took the word of God. He took the Bible. He took Deuteronomy and three times he quoted it as though that's all that was needed. It is written. It is written. It is written. That's enough. It is written. So, it's very important that we, we understand that if you're going to honor Christ, you're going to honor His Word. And to dishonor the Bible means something about really where Jesus stands, I believe, in your heart. The Bible is completely from God. It is not man-made. And since everything in this book is from God, and everything that God does is true, then every word God has spoken in this book is everywhere without mistake or without error. Now, People can, you know, they, they go to a silly town and they try to make cases about the Bible and, and they, they treat it in a way we don't treat any other conversation or language. The Bible uses analogies. It uses figures of speech. It uses approximation just as we do. So the Bible will talk about the sun rising, the sun setting. And so when some little seventh grader, oh, don't you know, I learned in school, you know, the earth doesn't. <laughs> You're being silly. You're being silly. Um. We affirm that the Bible is never mistaken. Now, let me tell you what the problem is. If you say, well, I do believe most of the Bible is true. I believe, I think, I think the absolute great majority of it is, but maybe not. The moment you say that, then you put yourself in authority over God's Word. If you say it's, it's mostly inspired, it's, it's mostly inerrant, it's mostly right, then what you're now saying is, I have the final word about what is God's Word and what isn't. Or my preacher has the final word. Or, or my friend does. Or some PhD. They get to decide what is the word of God and what isn't. And we reject that. And I think the Bible rejects that. 
Now, the second point I want to make this morning is that the Bible was written by men, sovereignly moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter gives us great insight, as much as we find anywhere, I think, in the Bible itself, on exactly how did, did God's Word that comes from Him, how did it get down through men into the paper and parchment so that we could read it this morning on a screen or on, on, on... And there's an incredible story of God's sovereign work between us and the times it was written, but we're just looking at how did it get to that written form in the first place. If it doesn't come from the minds of man, if it's not myths that were made up stories... If it's completely from God, how did it come to be? Particularly when we recognize that it's on testimony, it came from 40, at least 40 different authors who actually wrote the Bible. Well, Peter tells us something about how it came to be. Verse 21 is as clear as picture as I think of the methodology of this as you will find anywhere about how the Bible was produced. He says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, the King James Version, and you know, I was asked last night, is almost always asked uh, this question frequently by people, uh, uh, how do we know which translation? There is no perfect translation of the Bible. There's, um, you can't take from one language into another. There's, there's always a little bit of room for interpretation of what you're trying to do. So we have many wonderful translations, and many of us grew up on the King James Version. The King James Version translates like this, men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The New American Standard, I, very literal, but I like it for my own study. Some same men moved by the Holy Spirit from God. Hey, I like the word move. I think we might use that for something. Uh, the word moved, carried, uh, is, is a frequent word in the New Testament. Uh, the word sometime is used rather gruesomely. There's a, an occasion where uh, we're told that the head, the severed head of John the Baptist was moved on a tray and given to the girl who had caused his death. We're told that Simon of Serene was forced, uh, after Jesus could go no further, carrying his cross to the place of execution. Simon Serene carried, moved the cross to that place of execution. Now, the the ESV, the translation we use most often here on Sunday morning, says men spoke from God as they were carried along. So rather than you would move, or it says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the reason the ESV and some other uh, translations use that phrase probably has to do with how that word is used, particularly in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 2, we're told about that famous moment when suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it's the word rushing that is the same word, wind, moving. It's actually, in the case, if you read it carefully, it's not necessarily wind, but it sure sounded like a rushing wind that filled the entire house. So wind moving, wind rushing, that's what wind is, rushing air. We've had some thunderstorms the last few weeks, haven't we, where we had some rushing air, moving air, and it carried things along. If we have a hurricane, we know what the wind will do, how it will carry things along. Later, that word is much the same way in the book of Acts, Acts 27. We're told about that famous storm at sea. Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were, and here's the word again, we were driven, we were carried, we were moved along. Verse 17, same thing. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the citrus, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven. 
They were carried. They were moved along. So here's the Holy Spirit rushes. It moves in people's lives. It's like a wind that moves a ship. And now Peter turns around and says, men spoke from God as they were carried along, as they were moved, driven by the Holy Spirit. That is, they didn't come up with the Bible. They didn't dream it up. They didn't make it themselves but they wrote words down, but the Holy Spirit ultimately was the one directing, driving, moving them as they wrote it down in much the same way that a wind would direct a ship. Now, before we draw conclusions here, there's one other use of this word that unfortunately not one English translation makes it easy to spot, but right here in the very passage we're looking at, Peter's already used this word two times. Back last week in verses 17 and 18, he uses the same word. Look with me as we go back to verse 17. This is when he's describing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It says there, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born, that's the way the ESV translated, uh, the Christian Standard Bible, many of you use in your Bible study groups, a great translation. He says, The voice came to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So he uses the same word to describe the voice of God speaking on that mountain. He says it again in verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born, this word that came, this word that was carried from heaven to us, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You see it? Just as God spoke out loud and he said, I want to bear witness. I was an eyewitness. I saw Jesus transfigured and I heard with my own ears the voice of God In the same way, in just the same amount, the Scripture, our Bible, has been carried along by the Holy Spirit in its creation. The same level of inspiration as what Peter heard from, from the voice of God on that mountain, now he has heard God speak here in the Scriptures. So the Bible is fully from God, and yet it fully comes through human beings. And so we want to be very careful to say, we do not think about our Scriptures the way our Muslim friends think about their Scriptures. We do not believe that even with the 40 authors, that what they wrote down, they just, well, Mohammed, it was described over 23 years, he'd go in these trances. Some people described him as seeming like a demonic possession. I'll give it that possibility. I don't know. But the Bible was not written by people who went into a trance and then sort of automatic writing started writing, you know, I've got this. There's nothing like that. They were not transcribers. They were men who wrote out of their own experiences, out of their own educational background, out of their own giftedness. The Holy Spirit, though, was sovereignly directing through history, through their personality, through everything around that, so that what we get in Scriptures is exactly what the Lord wanted us to know. You can see the differences in how different writers write. You can can pull a passage from the New Testament, and if you're familiar with the writing, you say, that sounds like Paul, that sounds like John, that sounds like something in Matthew, or that sounds like one of the Psalms. I have three sons. Um, If each of them write a paragraph, I can probably tell you just by reading the paragraph, no matter what they write about, I can probably tell you which one wrote it. I know their mother can. Well, you can tell the difference between the way John writes, the way Paul writes, the way Peter writes. There's no idea that, that these came out of just some dictation from God. Can you imagine the Psalms thinking that the Psalms are filled with joy, thrilling things. Other times they're filled with despair and sadness and confusion, a lot of whys. 
You can't imagine any of the psalms being written by some guy that went into a trance and just wrote. This comes out of a bleeding, passionate hearts of people. And yet we believe the Holy Spirit produced exactly what is so helpful for us. We believe that God is big enough, sovereign enough, great enough that he can take every detail of this world, people and their experiences, and he can use their unique makeups and he can produce this perfect book. It's much the same way as what we, and we talked about this, remember, when we were in Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. We said the word inspired, probably not the right word these days, because we can say John Lennon's inspired, Shakespeare was inspired, my football team was inspired in that fourth quarter, you know, it, it just doesn't mean the same thing. The actual word means God breathed, that the, the breath of God produced this scripture through human instrumentalities. Now, you know what I mean, well... Let's just do it again. Take your hand. Take your hand, everybody. Got your hand? Get your hand. Got your hand. Put it right in front of your mouth. Okay? Repeat after me loudly. Pickles. Petunias. Porcupines. You can't enunciate those words without your breath. And in the same way, the breath of God spoke through these various men to produce the Scripture. That's not... Um, if we had time for a children's feature this morning, we would have had a trombone up here and a trumpet and maybe a tuba and maybe a flute. And maybe we could have found someone who could kind of, Matt probably could, could have played a little bit on all four of those instruments, played a tune. Now, they would all sound uniquely different, but it would all have been the same breath. God takes 40 authors, he breathes through their life, their situation, and out of that, he produces his word. And so we believe that this, this is foundational scripture for us. All right, finally... Point three, the word is trustworthy. It is a trustworthy light that we need, and we need to use it properly and as we live in a dark world. You notice verse 20, he, used, he starts uh, the, the last main thought here by saying this, knowing this first of all. So the basic stuff we're talking about here needs to be often spoken of because it is foundational. This is primary Peter is saying, put this at the forefront of your thinking, of your mind, of your intellect, of how you're interpreting your life. A Christian needs to look at the Bible and see it as that unique, dependable source of objective truth that is sort of presuppositional by how I look at everything else in my life. We affirm the inspiration of Scripture. We believe it carries all weight of divine authority. And we believe every book, every chapter, every line of it, all of it. Not just the theological part, not just the memorable stuff, not the part that we like. We think all of it. It's history, it's chronology, every truth that it affirms. Every word in the Bible is there because God wanted it there. And we are to listen to it and submit our lives to it. There's a word that we became prominent among Christians about the time I became a pastor. It actually had started before that, but I first actually was pastoring a church as a senior pastor in 1980. And uh, across the American Christianity, across evangelical lives, certainly across the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a lot of talk about the word inerrant, the word inerrant. Um, on the face of it, the word inerrant means the other words that have been used for a long time about the Bible. Uh, people would say about the Bible that it was infallible, uh, that it was the perfect word of God. Um, and really, on the face of it, you don't need another word, do you? I mean, uh, infallible means... Well, it never fails. That means it's all true. So why did some Christians, including the Christians at King's Baptist Church, want to use the word inerrant? Well, it seems that some people want to draw a fine point. There were people 
And Southern Baptist discovered we had people who were in leadership, including those who were training our pastors, some of them, who were saying, well, yes, we believe the Bible is perfect. We believe the Bible is infallible, uh, but we don't think it's inerrant. Uh, what? Well, we believe the Bible is infallible. We believe it's perfect, but it might have some errors in it. <laughs> and, and bless the people of God's heart, they, they stood up and said, that's no. Let every other denomination, let Christians, let them, but that's not where we're going to stand. And I'm thank God that we didn't stand there. I want you to affirm the Bible today as a book that does not make mistakes, that has no errors. If that's what you mean when you say it's perfect or infallible, whatever you words, that's fine. But let's be clear, it has no errors. J.I. Packard was one of those, he's uh, been a great theologian, great writer, he's kind of deep, uh, but um, he at the beginning was not in the errant, inerrant camp. He said, I don't think the word's necessary, it sounds negative. And he was right, there's some people who use the word inerrant, he said, I don't really want to be associated with them, they're some flat earth people who buy into all kinds of nonsense, I don't, you know, I just didn't want to, but over time, he came to say, you know, I'm wrong, as I look at it honestly, this word becomes important. This word inerrant has to be used. And he, he went on. This is a long quote. Hang with me here. Don't let me lose you. Um, I guess we'll put it on the screen up there. This is what he said. He says, what it says, that is the word inerrant, what it says is that in formulating my theology, I shall not consciously deny, disregard, or arbitrarily re-relativize anything that I find Bible writers teaching, nor cut the knot of any problem of Bible, Bible harmony, factual or theological, by assuming that the writers were not consistent with themselves or with each other. He says, when I study the Bible and I see things and I don't know how to reconcile them or whatever, I don't want to find my solution by saying, well, somebody made a mistake. He goes on to say, instead, I shall labor to harmonize and integrate all that is taught without remainder to take it as from God, however little I may like it. Have you found the Bible says a lot of things you don't like? It does to me every week. Stop it! But it doesn't. And to seek actively to live by it, whatever change in my present beliefs and behavior patterns it may require. This is what acceptance of the Bible as holy, God-given, and totally true requires of this. He goes on and says, you can't say that Christ is your Lord and that you're his faithful servant, but you won't submit yourself to the whole of what he has said of his own words. He goes on to say, the inerrancy debate is about more than just getting our doctrine, our scripture right. It's about the honor of God, the vitality of his people, the fullness of truth and life we must offer to a dying, unsure world. He says, any degree of skepticism about the portrait of Christ, the promises of God, the principles of godliness, the power of the Holy Spirit, as biblically presented, has the effect of enslaving us to our own alternative ideas about these things. And thus we miss something of the freedom, joy, and vitality that the real Christ bestows. He goes on to say God's very patient, merciful. I don't suggest that those who fall short here are, are forfeiting all their knowledge of Christ. He says, I do recognize that when one sits loose with the Scripture, he may be on the way to letting that happen. Finally, he says, but I do maintain most empirically, emphatically, that one cannot doubt the Bible without far-reaching loss, both in fullness of truth and fullness of life. If, therefore, we have at heart spiritual renewal for society, for churches, and for our own lives, we shall make much of the entire trustworthiness, that is, the inerrancy of Holy Scripture as the inspired and liberating Word of God. If we reject inerrancy, we're inevitably putting ourselves as judges over what God himself has said. Um, reject inerrancy it means we either reject the the scriptures themselves, or we say they're not all from God, or if they're all from God, then we're saying that God is not dependable, and those ideas are beneath 
a Christian who knows their Lord. And it will not help us. It will not bring joy. It will not bring fullness. It will not bring renewal. The Bible is the trustworthy light that we need in this dark world. Now, there's one final thing before we move to the Lord's Supper. We need to correctly know how to use the Bible as our light. That brings us to verse 20, which is a has some challenges. I translated it from the Greek to English. There's several ways you can honestly do it. Uh, and So look at the King James Version of verse 20. And there's nothing grammatically that says you can't translate it like this. It says, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Our Roman Catholic friends read that verse and say, Aha! That means no one is allowed to privately read the Bible for themselves and interpret Scripture for themselves. And you know the reason they can't do that is because that's the church's job. And so the Scriptures have been entrusted to the church. They would say individuals have to look to what the church says. That's what that means. To the official pronouncement from the church, that's how you understand what the Scripture says. And if you want to know how that played out until 1965 and the Second Vatican Council, every Roman Catholic church, the only time you heard Scripture was in Latin, which the average layperson nowhere in the world understood. It's only the experts, the scholars, the church authorities who could read it and then tell you what it was supposed to mean. Now, many Catholics have moved away from that to at least to some degree, although I fear there's still some that still lean strongly in that direction. But I'd have to tell you there's some Baptists who lean something like that. It's whatever my preacher says. That's what I believe, and that's it. <laughs> By the way, there's some charismatic friends who, not most of them, or even all of them, certainly not all of them, not even most of them, but there's some that lean off something in the same direction. They would teach you that their church, that is uh, maybe their church's prophet or their church's key leaders, that they are the ones who have to apply the Bible to your life. And that to be a part of their church means you put them in authority over your life. And so there are some churches like that who would say uh, whether you take a job or not or who you marry or how you make this investment or a whole host of things, we will read the scriptures for you. We will tell you what God has said and you ought to follow that. There's a name for that. They call it heavy shepherding. I think we ought to give it a try. I really think uh, maybe uh, I don't think that's the biblical understanding. That's not what it means when it says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Even if we take this as a good translation um, of the King James Version of it, it, is, it never answers the question. If it says you're not, to, you're not to interpret it for yourself, if that's what we take it means, it doesn't tell us who it is. It never says the church, the pastors, the elders, the, the denomination. It doesn't, doesn't do any of that. It, doesn't, it leaves that up in the air. And I don't, I don't think that's the way we ought to understand it. Another possible way to translate this verse is how it's done in the New American Standard, even more clearly in the Christian Standard. Let me show you those. Uh, they translate the verse like this. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And then maybe even clearer, verse 20 is translated by the Christian Standard Bible. I think many of you use, uh, we use that. It comes from our own publishing house, but it's a scholarly great translation. Above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. And I think what both of those are pointing to is that 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 ties it better with really what follows. So um, 
No prophets. It's that this, the prophecy they're saying doesn't come from the mind, the imagination, uh, the interpretation of the guy who's giving it. And then it, it, goes, it flows right into verse 21 that says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. He's just sort of stating in two different ways the same simple truth. Uh, so they say it's not about uh, how you interpret the prophecy. It's that the prophet's interpretation is not, was not based upon their own thinking. So that Jeremiah wasn't sitting around one day and said, you know, I've got a great book going on here. But I need a few more things. I need to take a writer's retreat because I want to fill this out just a little bit, come up with some more ideas. Or, or, you know, Ezekiel heard something in the marketplace. He said, oh, that's good. Let me write that down. And it, that's, that's, that's not what's going on here. Rather that these are prophecies that came through the Holy Spirit. Um, now, reading verse 20 and then reading verse 21, that seems very logical. There is another way to look at it, though. Verse 20 leads into verse 21, but verse 19 leads into verse 20. And so maybe it will help us to look at it from that angle. Let's go back to verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's interpretation. I don't take this guy as the final word, but he often has good words. John Piper paraphrases this this way. He says, pay close and careful attention to the prophetic word. And the first principle to guide you in how to pay attention is the principle that the true meaning of Scripture does not come from the mind of the reader. Hmm. How many times have you sat around a Sunday school class and somebody reads a Scripture and says, well, I think... The way I understand this, uh, my idea about this is, well, that's all helpful. That ought to get out there. But you've got to be real careful about that before long. It's just you can have a thousand opinions. And it's like whatever you think, that's all that matters. Like there's no objective truth. People say, well, the Bible can mean anything. Well, the Bible cannot mean anything. It, there's an objective truth. Now, sometimes it gets applied very directly and personally, but there's an overall objective thing that, that's, that is clear if we will do the work of studying the Scriptures and... We often need one another to do that. So I think it is important to come and sit under teaching by people who have had experience in teaching the Bible. I think it's important to sit with fellow Christians who are living life alongside of you. And they'll have insights and understandings and things out of their experience. And they can help you understand the Scripture. To say, I, I'm the final arbiter. I'll just read it. And this is what I think it means. And more often, you know what we do. We say we read passages and we say, well, I know what it seems like it says, but oh, it couldn't say that. And we try to dismiss things that are clearly taught in the Scripture. We say, oh, no, 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 no. And, and, and quite honestly, we need to be honest with one another. We ought to, to, to share with one another, and we ought to, to seek the Word of God together. Um, it's not just what I think about when I first read it, that that settles the matter. Remember when Paul brought the gospel to the, the Bereans, he congratulated them because they received the message of the gospel with great inner eagerness and you take it by implication together they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul had said was true. So we ought to do the same thing. The, the understanding of the Bible cannot be, it's certainly a, no church, no pastor, no group of pastors, no denomination has the final word on what it means, but neither is this a matter of just every individual just makes it up for themselves. We need one another in the body of Christ to understand that. Which brings me to one of my favorite topics. Move groups. What a concept. Where we get together with the Word of God in a group, whether it's on Sunday mornings or at a home or so, and we, we study the Scriptures together. And we, we struggle. We think, I, 
and, and, and we get the help of a fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And many of you are in one of those groups already. You may never call it that. That's what we're calling it these days uh, for lots of reasons. We're trying to say we want to, we're really trying to go back to what, quite honestly, we as Southern Baptists did really good 20, 30 years ago in Sunday school classes. We have a lot, we're here to study the word, we're here to take care of each other, and we're here to reach the world through our groups. And that's what we're trying to say in a real simple way to do it. And I, many of you are in groups like that. We just want them to be focused again on all that they ought to do. Many of you aren't in a group and you ought to be. And boy, over the next few weeks, we're going to give you some opportunities. We're going to help do our best, better job than we've ever done, helping you know all the groups that are available, many new groups that are being formed, and we're going to invite you to at least give a shot at being in one of these groups and see what God might do in your life. We believe that the health and future of our church really comes out of that. Well, I could talk about that a long time, but this morning we come as a people of the book, and I'm, I'm glad to have grown up among Christians who knew the book who loved the book and taught me to love the book. And as I have grown and studied and considered it over these years, I'm more confident that I can stand every week and preach from this book. And despite my foibles and failures, I'm building on a foundation that's solid. I hope you're building on it that way too. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, and I want to say a few more words about verse 19. But before we do that, let's distribute the Lord's Supper, and let's just be quiet before the Lord. And let him seek our hearts. I would just start maybe this morning. If you love Jesus, you, you want to remember what he's done for you, then do you love his word? How much time have you spent in his word? How much, how much effort have you made to hear him speak through his word this week? And as you do that, even as you do it today, what, is there anything that you need to deal with before you take this meal? Christians ought to, you ought not to take this meal if you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, if you're not by faith trusting in his salvation. And you shouldn't take this meal if you're a Christian. And there's live disobedience, sin, and rebellion in your heart that he's pointing out. And if you've not surrendered and repented of and dealt with, then, then we should wait till later. Uh, next time we do it, but miss it today. But hopefully we are in a place today where we are ready to take and honor our Lord and remember what he's done for us. We know that because of his word. So men, those of you that are going to serve us today, if you'd come forward and serve the meal to us. we're distributing this, I would mention, I know we've got a lot of concerns health-wise. You may prefer to say, I don't want an open cup. If you'd like, we have the sealed cups, the sealed Lord's Supper service. If you just slip your hand up, uh, Pastor Dave, I think, is back there ready. He can get that to you. So if you'd prefer that rather than the open cups, take that. I also mentioned, I, I failed to do this, if you notice on our Lord's Supper trays, the inner tray is water. Some people cannot drink the grape juice, so there's water. So if you want to use the, the traditional elements, those are on the outside. Uh, there's two cups. We'll take them apart. Both the bread and the cup are both together.
read verse 19 one more time before we take this meal. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Just remember, Peter has just described his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, verses 17 and 18. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. I could not be more certain. There could not be better established testimony than what the three of us give witness to, as well as the whole life of Jesus. But then he says, we now have a word talking about the scriptures that's even more fully confirmed. That there's something better than my eyewitness experience. It's your eyewitness experience in the scriptures where God reveals himself to you. And if you will turn to it and you will meet Jesus in the pages of that, his word, then if you look at it like a lamp shining in a dark place, you'll discover it's like dawn. It gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And the morning star, which is used in Revelation and other places as a picture of Jesus, will rise higher and higher and higher in your hearts. This word is not magical. It's not but it brings us the one who is our Savior and Lord and King, the one who died on the cross for us, who rose again, who has our hope for now and for all eternity, which everything will hinge, the confession we make about him. And today we remember what he has done for us, the price he has paid on the cross, and we are determined to follow him as he has spoken to us through his word. So in remembrance of our Savior, his broken body, his shed blood, we take this meal remembrance of him. I'm going to stop talking here in a minute. I had a hard time stopping at Pioneer. I'm going to stop here. I'm going to just say one more thing before we go. This is such, it's as familiar as this may be. There's never been a time like this time where God's people need to anchor their hearts on the word of God. We live in a world of confusion and a lot of us are being confused. We live in a world where technology as deliberately streaming us down to all kinds of paths. They've got algorithms that if we're paying attention, they will steer us into all kinds of nonsense that make us look like idiots. I'm just going to be blunt with you. And some of us, we can, we're buying into things that may be right, it may be partially right, it may not be right at all, but, but we, we need to say, I don't know about a lot of things. I hear a lot of stuff. I have a lot of things I don't know, but I know the Jesus of the scriptures. I know the word of God and I'm going to stand on its principles. And our testimony, the testimony of our church depends on us, no matter what group you come from, to anchor yourselves on the word of God. We live in a time where people are looking for something to stand on. You, you hear it all the time. Let, you know, we, we believe in science. Well, Christians are pro-science. Science as we know it that changed the world didn't come out of Islam it didn't come out of the Far East. It came out of that old Christian civilization, Europe. That as faulty as it was, was built on the principles of the Word of God. And that's where the Renaissance, and that's where everything we have in the world today, because that worldview can produce that. So we, we, we love science, but we don't. But what we have today is people saying science with a capital S. What we have declared is science. That's the final word. There is no, if you know anything about science, <laughs> any science will tell you it doesn't work that way. Science is built around people writing papers and disagreeing with each other and constantly learning, constantly exploring, constantly arguing. It's, it's always changing There's, it, it, we, because we never, the, the world that God has made is so much that we'll never get to the end of it. It's, thank God for science, but it's not the final. You can't stand on it as the final word, but there is a place to stand on final, unchanging word. And that's what we have in scriptures. And let's stand there. Okay. Now let's do it like 
like Jesus did on that night when they took the Lord's Supper. Let's stand and sing a hymn together. Let's sing the doxology. If you don't know, this is time you learn it. Let's go. Church conference tonight, 6 o'clock. See you then. God bless you. Have a good afternoon.